in the book of Proverbs. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We thank you that through him we have life and life eternal, that he is the source of life, that you are the source of life, and that we cannot find life anywhere except for you. We ask that as we look into your word, the words of life, that your spirit would be working on our hearts, that your spirit would be leading us and guiding us, guiding us towards your son, Jesus Christ, guiding us back to your word. We thank you so very much for him. We thank you so very much for your word. Just thank you for everyone who's here. And they're, they're, uh, what, what a great joy it is to be amongst like-minded brothers and sisters who are here to learn about you and think about your word. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So I uh, got back from Florida about a month ago. Haven't really, didn't really talk about what happened while I was there. One of the things that did happen, though, while I was there, was we had three guys driving in a car. We had three different GPSs going at the same time with three different directions. And the guy who was driving, me, had never been there before. And so just imagine listening to three GPSs constantly saying, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. And the guy who's sitting on the side says, nope, you missed the turn. The guy in the back says, no, you need to continue straight. And the GPS in front of me says, no, you need to make a left-hand turn. And you just go, which way am I supposed to go? I, I don't know where I'm supposed to be going. Which way should I go? In a sense, the world is a lot like having a car full of GPSs. Each one saying, go this way, go that way. You have all this advice, you have all these different standards, and the question easily is asked, well, which way do I go? This morning in Proverbs chapter 14, in verses 20, uh, 22 through 27, we're going to look at this question, which way should I go? And I think Solomon is going to give us Three principles here on how to determine the right direction or the right path. So the first piece of advice that he gives is we should take the path which is pleasing to God. Right? This is the most obvious. When I'm trying to determine which way I should go and make decisions and discernment and wisdom, the first question must be, is this the one that's pleasing to God? The second is, which path is the most profitable for me? Remember that principle that the Apostle Paul talked about. All things are lawful. Not all things are beneficial, right? I'm allowed to do all things, but not all things are profitable. So the question then is, well, what's, what's the most profitable? And then lastly, in verses 25 through 27, we're going to look at which path should I take? Well, the path that has the most security, the one that's the safest, the one that's going to help me get where I'm going alive. So let's look first at verse 22, which path should I take? And this morning we're going to look at this really interesting verse in 22. And I think the one that we take is the one that is 
consistent with God, the one that God would be pleased with, the one that consults God, the one that thinks about God's promises. So notice what he says in 22. He says, Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. Kind of an interesting uh, thing that Solomon does here. He asks a question, and obviously the answer to the question is a positive yes. You don't have to wonder. That is the obvious thing. The person who devises evil will go astray. They will leave the path. It's just kind of interesting when he says go astray. The idea here for going astray is to, to walk off the, off the beaten path. It has the idea of walking away from what is known. So theologically here to go astray would be one who walks away from the known path of God. Walks away from the known commandments of God. Today we may use the word apostate. An apostate is somebody who at one time claimed to know Jesus claimed to believe the things that were taught in the word, and then, in a short while, then denies them and utterly rejects them. And so we would say that's an apostate. I think the Bible would would point out, and I would point out, that I'm not 100% sure that person was truly a believer to begin with, to claim to be a believer and then to reject it so violently afterwards as is an apostate, to accept and then to reject, they probably never believed to begin with. And think about this. Our, our faith and our belief is not like a pair of pants. You just don't put it on and walk around and go, ah, it didn't fit me. I think I'm going to get a new pair of pants. Go find something new. Go put some on, on some new worldview. That's not how belief works. Belief is an, intric- an integral part of how we see the world, of how we make decisions, of, of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. It's answering the question of origins. This is not just something simply to go and shop around and try on which one fits best. So an apostate is really somebody who one time claimed, but then utterly rejected. And so the implication here is, so if one does that, if one walks away from the known path, most likely never even believed to begin with, This person is the one who devises evil. So I'm going to kind of take this backwards. What does it mean to do evil? Well, here the word to do evil is to cause harm. That's what evil means here. It's to cause harm. It's a corruption of that which is good. And the word for device, devise, it's kind of an interesting word. It means to plow a field. So you go, well, how how do you... How do you get from plowing a field to devise? Well, in the Hebrew, the sense is, as one goes out to prepare a field to receive seed, you're going out and devising a way, the best way of putting the seeds in the ground. And that's the image of somebody going out, and like someone planting a field, this person is thinking about, planning, putting things into place to hurt another person. This this is indicative of an apostate. Now, I've heard plenty of apostates, those who have one time claimed to be a believer and then have rejected Christ and the Bible outright, and many of them seem very sympathetic. Many of them go to other Christians and talk as if they've seen the light and trying to help Christians understand their backward ways of believing the Bible. And from their point of view, 
And even in some of their rhetoric, it may sound gracious, it may sound nice, but realize what they're actually doing. These people are actually pulling people away from the word, pulling people away from Jesus Christ, pulling people away from God. If you are pulling someone away from the living God who offers the way of life, you are doing evil, not good. Now, notice the next part of this parallelism. It's kind of an interesting one. It says, but kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. Kindness and truth are really difficult words to translate. And kindness is okay. Truth is okay. We could translate it as, but covenant love or, or a covenant faithful love. That's what the word kindness is. It has this idea of loyalty, has this idea of love, has this idea of fidelity. So kindness here deals more with the one's love and connection to something. And then truth here, we could that's right, but we could easily translate it as well as faithful. And so the question is, What do we mean? What does Solomon mean when he says kindness and truth? What does he mean when he says covenant faithful love? And what does he mean when he says faithfulness? Where is this love coming from and where is this faithfulness? Because notice it says, but kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. And some may say, well, that's the person doing good. They're exhibiting their faithfulness and their love. However, and ultimately we could say, who's the one who shows covenant love? The Lord. Who's the one who's faithful? The Lord. So the one who is faithful, the one who's obedient to God's word, will experience this covenant love and faithfulness of God. I think that's what's being said. That flowing from one's new life in Christ, we will experience God's faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to himself, his faithfulness to the believer. We live every moment in the love of God. As a believer, I, I'm always thinking about the love of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, in the Old Testament, to which Solomon is writing, they might have had a little bit of a different understanding of this idea of hesed or uh, of God's uh, kindness, his covenant love. They probably would have had a little bit of a different read on what this would have meant. And I just want to briefly talk about some of the covenants that were in play at the time of Solomon write, of, of his writing so that you may understand this of how Solomon meant it and how the original audience would have kind of interpreted it. And then that will help us with clarity of how we as believers will interpret it. So remember that in the Old Testament there are numerous covenants, these promises that God made, and we're thinking specifically of the ones that are made to the Israelites. The first one is found in Genesis, Genesis 12, 15, 20, uh, 17, 22. These are promises that God made to Abraham. These promises were unconditional, meaning that Abraham didn't have to do anything to gain the promise It was simply a promise based off the character of God. And this promise was to his descendants, they will inherit the land and all the people of the earth will be blessed. 
That was the promise. It doesn't matter what the descendants of Abraham do after that. That promise is still for them. Then you then fast forward some 400 years to the time of Moses. And Moses, when he was receiving the law from God, God enacted two more promises. One, you may argue, well, that's just a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant, maybe. But the first one we would call the Mosaic covenant. This is the 613 laws or so that are enumerated in the first five books of the Bible. And remember in Deuteronomy 30, where God says, look, if you guys keep this, I'm going to bless you. The world will not, the world will never see a civilization like yours. You will be blessed financially, economically. You will have tremendous, tremendous agricultural wealth. You will never be in want if you're obedient. If you're disobedient, the complete opposite will happen. I will take you from the land. I will remove you from the land. All of that stuff that was supposed to be for you will be given to other people, and you'll be removed from the land. And so part of the, Aber, or part of the Mosaic covenant is this. If you, are, if you obey Israel, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. It's conditional. At the tail end of this, he says, now, you're going you're gonna to fail. Israel, you're going to fail. I'm just going to tell you. You're going to fail. I made this conditional promise, but let's face it. You guys are going to fail. After you fail, I am going to change your heart. I will bring you back to the land and give you all the land, and I will put in you a new heart. I I will do all of the work that you are incapable of doing. You cannot keep this law, and I will change your heart and bring you back. This is known as the land covenant. There's another one, which would have been very dear to Solomon. It was given to his father, David, and it was the Davidic covenant, which was a, once again, another unconditional promise that God will bless the descendants of David, the physical descendants of David, that there will be one who comes from David's loins who will sit on a throne forever, ultimately speaking of Christ. So when Solomon writes this, that there will be this covenant love and faithfulness from God, Imagine the original audience saying, of course that's true. The book of Deuteronomy teaches us that if I'm obedient to the law, there is going to be this, I'm going to experience this love, this faithfulness from God. Very true. Now for us as believers, we we have a slightly different arrangement. Jesus came, he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. Everyone who places their trust solely on Jesus Christ, abandoning all other methods of salvation, shall be saved, trusting in the person and work of Jesus. There's a lot that happens when a person places their faith in Jesus. There's the working of God upon that person's heart. And that moment that that person then expresses that faith, the Bible teaches us that there is lots of things that happen. Things you might not even perceive happening, but they're happening. So first of all, you are placed into Christ. You don't necessarily feel that, but you are. You're put into Christ. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You may or may not feel that. It doesn't really matter. That's what's happened. The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and he's not leaving. As a believer, we have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, waiting for the day of Christ Jesus. 
as a believer, being placed in Christ, having the Holy Spirit, being imputed with the righteousness of Christ, the Bible makes it very clear that all those who truly believe in Jesus Christ are also kept by the power of the Father. Meaning this, once you're in, you're in. That's it. If you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, his love towards you is immense and eternal, and there is nothing you can do or say or think that will change his promise towards you. Now, it's not because you're that great. Remember, you are in Christ, and therefore being in Christ and being identified with Christ, if God was to deny you, he's essentially denying Christ, and therefore he cannot deny himself. So we are kept by the power of God. Now, we're not left alone. There's that indwelling Holy Spirit, and as the indwelling Holy Spirit works on our heart, what is he doing? He's chiseling away all of those, the flesh, all those old, bad attitudes and sins, and recreating in us the person of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what we have as believers. And so in a sense, we experience this this love of God, this covenantal love, all the time. So how do we as Christians look at verse 22? We would say, of course, the one who does good, and we would, we would add the caveat, they can only do good because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. They're already a believer. They're not an apostate. They're moving towards Christ. That's the implication. They're doing good. Those people are the ones who experience God's loving kindness and his faithfulness towards them. So when I'm then thinking about which way should I go, and I think about God's loving kindness and the promises that he's made to me in Christ Jesus, I then say, well, I want to do everything I can to be pleasing to him. I want to do things that are according to his word. I don't want to walk away from those things. I want to walk in those things. I don't want to turn to the right or to the left. I want to go straight down the road. So, there's a lot of people saying a lot of different things these days. How do you know which way to go? Pick the way that is consistent with God's word. Pick the way that is glorifying to God. Pick the way in which Jesus is going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Those are the decisions that we need to make. What will God be pleased with? Now, this may mean that we may stop certain things that we really enjoy doing because we like doing things and we go, well, will God be pleased by this? And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll go, no, I don't think, I don't think the Lord would be very pleased with this activity at this moment right now. And so it really requires us to be honest with ourselves. really requires us to be honest with God's word. Now, there's more. Now, notice the next verse. How do, I de- how do I determine which way to go? Well, I go the way which is the most profitable. Notice in verse 23, he says, In all labor there is profit. Mere talk leads only to poverty. Now, this is one of the Proverbs that we hear quite often. And these are one of those Proverbs that it, you can take it and it's applicable But it really doesn't have its full punch unless you understand it with the idea of that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? 
So this is one of those things that if you were just to go out and tell somebody, well, if you work hard, there's always, it's always better to work hard, and, and there's a great reward in working hard for what you have. And don't go around talking about how hard of a worker you are. Actually get down and do the work, and that's beneficial. We would all say, well, on a human level, that's true, okay? But it really, really is kind of shallow compared to if you understand this in light of the fear of the Lord. So if, if I understand this in the light of the fear of the Lord, then I fear the Lord, therefore in all my labor there is profit. Meaning that I'm working hard because I fear God and I want to honor God and my reverence for God. I'm not doing this merely just to obey my boss. I am doing this ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his honor and for his glory. But it is interesting that he says all labor. Clearly, Clearly, Solomon would not think if you're, do, if you're devising evil and you're doing evil works that there brings a profit in that. He just got done saying that that's not a good thing. So clearly, all profit here, the caveat is all work, all labor that is consistent with God's word and does not cause you to walk outside of God's will is the right kind of labor and there's profit in that. So obviously, this could talk about our jobs. We as Christians should be the best workers at our jobs. We as Christians should never say, this job is below me. I'm far, I'm far too qualified for this job. Nope. as Christians, we should work, and we should work hard. And there's a great profit in working hard. Um, but we could also look at this and go, well, there's a spiritual dimension here, too, that not just working hard just to make money, but working hard for the Lord, the, the, the spiritual profit that goes with this, working hard in good works, doing things that the Lord's asking me to do and doing it with the right heart and the right attitude, the right motivation. That, that I should also be working hard. I, I, should, I should be laboring hard that way. And there's great, not maybe physical reward, but there's great spiritual reward. There's one passage I was thinking of. Go with me to Colossians 1. Keep your finger in Proverbs, but Colossians 1. Just notice in verse 28, here's the Apostle Paul. As he's kind of giving his philosophy of ministry, he's talking about why he does what he does and how he does it. Verse 28, he says, we proclaim him. So the Apostle Paul... His ministry and the apostles' ministry and those who are with the apostles, they do what? We proclaim Christ. That's it. That's our job. The job of the apostles is to proclaim Christ. By implication, according to the book, we would say, well, that's kind of the job then of every believer. That as believers, we should be known for our proclamation of Jesus Christ more than our proclamation and stances and other things. Right? I should be known for being a follower of Jesus, far above being known for being whatever else, right? So for me, I should be known as a follower of Jesus far more than being a guitar player, right? If, if people know me as a guitar player, and then they go, oh, and they have to dig really deep and go, oh, you're a Christian, then maybe I'm not living my life the right way. The, the whole purpose of the church is to proclaim Christ, that's it. And then notice, 
We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, in his proclamation of Christ, is admonishing every man, warning them of the effects of sin, the effects of walking away from the Lord, teaching every man with all wisdom, meaning that he is showing everyone through the scriptures, by God's word, who Jesus Christ is and how to live by Christ, so that at the end he may take every man and present every man complete in Christ. To the Apostle Paul, even his ministry of proclaiming Christ doesn't end with him. It ends with, here's this other person who needs to know about Jesus, and I want them to be complete in Christ. Notice that the emphasis is Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, teaching the word, presenting them to Jesus. He's not concerned about him being noticed at the end. Then notice what he says in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving. Now, labor and striving here are two very interesting words in the Greek. It demonstrates hard work. But the word for striving, we actually get the English word agony from. Agonizing. This is not just talking about hard work. It's hard work until it hurts, right? If I'm doing something and I'm in agony and I continue to do it, then I'm, then I'm doing it for the cause, right? I, every single muscle, every single intention is moving towards one goal. That's the, that's the intention. So he's saying, I am, I'm working hard, hard. As far as it depends on him, I'm working hard. And then notice what he says, according to his power, which mightily works within me. And here, believer, is the great struggle for every single believer. To be able to get to the place of saying, I'm going to struggle hard in all my strength to be obedient, full well knowing that it's also the strength of God that is working in me and through me. And so there's this, I'm working hard and he's working hard and we're working hard together to do the things that he's asking us to do. This is the job of the believer. Here is this, uh, this synergism, if we could use a word. The two people coming together. Two things working together for a goal. Paul's striving and, and God is striving. So when, when we see a phrase like this back in Proverbs where it says, in all labor, that's the type of labor. It's, it's working hard. Yes, it's working hard for food on the table, but it's also working hard for the Lord, and there is always a profit for working for the Lord that may not mean money, but there's always profit. If nothing else, then just proclaiming Jesus Christ and honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ. And as those who are enamored with Jesus, who love to hear him be proclaimed, we would say, that's enough. If that's all the reward there is, just hearing the name of Jesus exalted, that should be enough riches and profit for us. But notice what he then says next. But mere talk leads only to poverty, meaning there's a difference between those who work hard and those who talk about working hard. We probably have all been on job sites where the people talked about how they're the best worker, and then they go to someone else and say they're the best worker, and then they go to someone else and say they're the best worker. Then they go to someone else and say it's lunchtime. And then they get back from lunch, and then they go back and say, yeah, I worked hard this morning. And then they go to the next person. I worked hard this next... Man, you don't know how hard I worked this morning. 
Then they go to the next guy. It's time to go home. Put in a full day's work. They didn't do anything. All they did was talk about how they're hard workers, right? We understand that, and no boss puts up with that. So if no boss puts up with that, why would we assume that the Lord would put up with something like that of us just going around talking about how we talk about him? But notice what he says in verse 24. He says, the crown of the wise is their riches. So this could be the fact that the wise person is wise with their money and therefore they have riches and it sh- their, their wise accumulation of wealth is on full display. But I would also say that this riches would be a spiritual sense as well that living for the Lord and, and doing things for the Lord, there is, a, there is a richness of life that comes from that. There is a deep satisfaction of, in, in life that comes from that. There's a sense in which God is pleased, and, and you just walk around going, man, my life is just full. There's just full. I can't explain it other than it's full. I just feel full because I'm living for the Lord. And I'm serving the Lord. There's this richness of life. And I think it's obvious to people. I think it's obvious to people on the outside. But the folly of fools is foolishness. Essentially saying... The only thing that a fool can do is folly, and it is so obvious, and it takes him away from the Lord. So the idea is that here's this person who all they do is they talk about all the stuff they do, but they never really do anything. And as they're continuing to talk about all the stuff they do, it actually is leading them away from the Lord because they're not doing anything. We would say that person who's foolish, who only talks, probably never really fully knew the Lord. And so here we see the difference. Right? Working hard for the Lord. And there's a prophet. So when you're trying to say, okay, well, which way should I go in life? How about the one that serves the Lord? Now, that doesn't mean you have to go into full-time ministry. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if there is no consideration of, can I serve the Lord in doing this? Then, then you need to stop. Everything that we do says, how is this in service to my king? How is this doing a good thing for him? Is this under the power of the, of the Holy Spirit? Am, am, I, am I doing something that is according to his word that's actually for him? I, uh, we, we, I joke with Krista sometimes. We, we hear people who, who are some of our friends, and they, I'm not questioning their heart. We just, I just think it's funny how they say it. But they'll say, yeah, we're going to such and such a place. We're buying such and such a house as a ministry. And you go, buying a house isn't necessarily a ministry, and going to the, some of the most beautiful places in the world is not a ministry. But, but I think some people actually believe that's what they're doing. I'm just here, and that's my ministry. I'm just here. I don't think that is the way that a believer should act. I think a believer should be very proactive, look at what the Bible says, being obedient in the place where you are. And I think that's what the Lord would want, using your spiritual gifts to edify other believers, right? Evangelizing, telling people about Jesus. So when we're making decisions, one of the, one of the considerations is, can I serve the Lord if I do this? Or am I going to be serving something else? There's this last one, is that there is security. Notice in verse 25, it says, a truthful witness saves lives but one who utters lies is treacherous. So, first of all, if you save a life, that is a sense of security, right? 
And as believers, as we've talked numerous times in the book of Proverbs, we should be ones who tell the truth. And telling the truth saves lives. But not just any truth. <laughs> Here, this is a court case, right? Being a truthful witness has the idea of a legal, has legality behind it. So somebody who's speaking in a court case, telling the truth, even if it makes them look bad, actually ends up saving lives. But on a spiritual level, we would say telling the truth about Jesus actually does save people's lives, right? Because what other truth is there that saves lives other than the Lord Jesus Christ? And then notice, one who utters lies is treacherous. So there's this sense of somebody who is willing to lie in a court case or willing to lie just in a, in a casual conversation. There is some level of treachery there. There's some level of dishonesty. There's some level of trying to hurt, even, even if they're trying to save their own skin or someone else's. The idea is a falsehood is bad. And ultimately, it comes from a sense of treachery, that you're willing to, to hide something. You're saying this is the reality when it's not reality to hide the ultimate reality. That's treacherous. That, that's not good. And I think if we fear the Lord and we love the Lord and we want to be like the Lord and we know that God is truth and God does not lie, then we would want to strive to be like him. But notice the next verse in verse 26 in this idea of security, saving lives. There's the saving lives, just general, telling the truth. And then in verse 26, it says, In the fear of the Lord. So, in this attitude of fearing God, okay? Having this reverence for God, this awesome respect for God. In this attitude, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Think of that. In the fear of the Lord, when I am fearing the Lord, there is this strong stability. There's this sense of God's protection, right? That's, that's the idea here of strong confidence. It's a, it's a synonym of, of a refuge. It's, it's, a, it's a place where you go where, where you won't be easily toppled. It's a place where you go where you can be defended and secure. So if I'm fearing the Lord, have this awesome respect for the Lord, I am, have this strong confidence in Him, there's this digging in on Him, and then there is this protection from God. And notice that it just doesn't even stop just with with me. And it says, and his children will have refuge. So think of this. The children of the Lord will have refuge. Isn't that incredible? If I fear the Lord, his children, the Lord's children, will find refuge in the Lord. So when I'm thinking of security and wanting to be secure, I want to be secure in him and have him protect me. There's even a sense, I, we could even look at this and go, well, even his children, we, we could say even our children have security as well, right? If I'm fearing the Lord, I'm making the right kind of decisions. Doesn't that offer then some sort of security and stability for the children? Also, yes, it does. But there is a, there is a strong refuge in God and in fearing him. It's almost as if, if I fear God, then I don't have to fear anyone else. If I respect God, then I'm protected from everything else. So which way should I go? Well, I should go the way that's the safest. The safest is with the Lord. Now, some of you may say, well, Caleb, 
we see that, but we also see other believers who have their strong confidence in the Lord. They have the fear of the Lord. They have reverence, and yet bad things happen to them. And I would say, I guess it depends on how you look at it. The Lord Jesus Christ definitely had reverence for the Lord, and he was crucified. But did the Lord ultimately save him? Yep. Let's ask this. Let's say some of our brothers and sisters that we've heard about in India who've had their houses burned down because of some of the persecution from the Buddhists towards our brothers and sisters. Let's say that one of them lost their life. Would they be secure in God's arms after they die? Yep. Because there's security there. Those who fear him, love him, and trust him, that's, a, that's something that happens from a believer, and they will ultimately be rescued. They may experience momentary pain. They may experience momentary, momentary uh, exposure to, to persecution, but ultimately they will be rescued because they are secure by the Father. Notice what else it says in verse 27. It says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That's an interesting image, isn't it? It's a fountain of life. You get the idea of something that is constantly bubbling up, something, uh, a, a brook that is bringing up new water, not, not drinking from a stagnant pool, but it's this, this living well, this living fountain. And the fear of the Lord is this fountain of life. It brings life. Why? Because life is found in God. He's the only one that can offer life. Life is offered in him. So if I go to him, he's the only one that can offer life. And notice what he says, that one may avoid the snares of death. So if, I, if I'm in the fear of the Lord and I fear the Lord, notice what I'm avoiding. Notice the security. I'm avoiding snares of death. Now, snares here... I don't know if any of you ever laid a snare for something. But snares are meant to catch something and not let go. And the harder you pull and try to get out, the more it traps you. Snares also use bait. Or they're often placed in places where animals are running to catch them because they're always there. So think of this. You have the fountain of life. Good water that brings life in the fear of the Lord. Everything else is a trap and a snare that will kill you. That's the security that you have in the Lord, in fearing Him, in reverence. So which way should I choose? I should choose the way that brings life, that brings about life. The way of the fear of the Lord. I was... uh, as I was working this morning on the sermon, I, I was looking at my wall, and on my wall in my office, I just have these several man-made posters that help me stay focused throughout the week. I get pretty distracted, and so with those posters up on the wall, I'll see them and go, oh, yeah, no, I need to get back to work. Um, and one of, them, one of them's kind of fun. It's, it's a quote by Count Zinzendorf, and I just like saying that name, so that's why I have it. No, the quote is, uh, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's, that's a really powerful one for me, and I look at it and go, yeah, no, I need to get focused. I have another one that has my philosophy of ministry, how I define ministry, how ministry's done. I have another one. It's just, I don't know. It, it's a picture of the tallest mountain in Kansas. 
Yeah. And the reason I have the picture of the tallest mountain in Kansas, by the way, if you want to know, it is Mount Sunflower. <laughs> you can actually go look at it. And when you see a picture of it and you hear my explanation, you go, oh, I get it. It's very easy for any one of us to become proud and arrogant of our accomplishments and say, look at how big and mighty I am. And just by having a picture of the tallest mountain of Kansas, I go, that's what I am. I'm the tallest mountain of Kansas. I'm really nothing. I'm, I'm really nothing at all. And so it helps me just remind myself that my true strength re- relies on the Lord. But I also have this other thing on my wall. It's uh, the quote. It's, it's a picture of Martin Luther as he's standing uh, before the Diet of Worms in, in 1521. And on there, it has, a, has his quote, his last statement that he made at the Diet of Worms. And though I don't agree with everything that Luther said in his entire life, and I'm not advising anyone to really say, go out and just be a scholar of Luther because there's some crazy there. What he did say that day in April in 1521 to all those cardinals there at the Diet of Worms, he nailed it. Excuse the Reformation pun there, but he nailed it. And i just like to read it just for a moment. He says this. He says, Since your sincere majesties and your high majestiness require me to give a simple and clear direct answer, I will give you this. I cannot submit my faith either to pope or to council because it is clear as the noonday that they have fallen into air and even into glaring inconsistencies within themselves. If then I am not convinced by the proof of Holy Scripture or by cogent regions, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have, satis- I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for I cannot be or for it cannot be safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Now, I say this quote for this simple reason. This moment, Luther was standing in front of a whole bunch of cardinals who were asking him to deny his faith, deny Jesus Christ, to deny justification by faith alone. Luther had before him two very simple choices. He either say, everything I said was a lie, and it's not true, or I'm going to stand with the gospel. And I think that Luther, in his statement, very clearly says something better than I could say it, in the sense of, I must follow the Lord, and I must follow the scriptures. And I think he chose the right path that day. And I I say that as an example for us, because before us are two paths. The path to follow the Lord and the path not to. And the question is, why, why, which way should I go? How should I make my decisions? The decisions should be made based off of God's word. And unless I'm convinced by God's word, unless I'm convinced and moved by the spirit, we can do no other than follow God's word regardless of the temptation. And so which way should I choose? The way of the word. The way of the word that's pleasing to the Lord. The way of the Lord that's profitable. The way of the Lord that's safe. We can really do no other as believers, but follow the Lord. 
And so my advice is follow the Lord, follow the word. Do not believe anything unless it comes from black and white between these 66, page, these 66 books. That's it. Follow him and him alone. We really can do no other thing. That's where we should stand. That's the way we should walk. And may God help us as we do this. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you so very much for the things that are found here. We ask that we would fear you, respect you, have reverence for you. So very thankful for everyone who's here. Thank you for their willingness to come and listen to your word. I pray that your spirit would work mightily in their hearts and that you would be exposing all of our sins, exposing all of those things that we need to change and repent of so that we may become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.